0: Welcome to another episode of The Winning Agenda. Tonight, uh, our host is Wilfred E. Horrig, a uh, lovable Byroid himself. That's me, if anyone didn't know. And also, Calvin Wong, uh, 2015 Regional Champion, is uh, that right? Nationals
1: Top 8. I was nowhere close to being Regional Champion.
0: <laughs> oh, that's cool. I must have gotten my uh, hastily written notes confused. Um, but yeah, so Nationals Top 8 competitor, uh, and also... <laughs> here to continue our discussion uh, on beginner strategy that we uh, started last week. Uh, If you haven't listened to that episode, I mean, I recommend listening to all our episodes, but this one will be kind of follow on from something we talked about last week. What did we talk about? We
1: talked about scoring windows and when should I run as the runner, which is kind of the anti-scoring window. It's like, when can I, when can I force the cop to to do things that they don't want to do? And as the cop, when can I force the runner to do things that they don't want to do?
0: And I think that kind of lies at the heart of Netrunner strategy is sort of manipulating those two factors. But I think today we wanted to talk about deck building, which is something that I suppose you sort of get your, you, when you're starting runner, you want to get your feet wet with deck building as soon as possible. I found that most people who are fairly serious, um, either if they buy a collection or just buy the core set and some more cards or anything in between those two, sort of want to look at their cards and be like, how can I build a strategy that I want to play and might also win some amount of the time?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And so do you find that that's common, that for, for new people, they sort of want to start with deck building?
1: I think that they that they get excited about deck building and they go like, ooh, 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 I have all these ideas, right? Like I see these cards and these data packs that I open, and they go, Oh my god, wouldn't it be awesome if this were if I could combo this and this? And they start to get really cool ideas, and then they I, then they go and try and put those ideas into practice, and they find the truth, which is deck building is really really difficult. It's not that their ideas are bad. I'm pretty sure actually a lot of these ideas are good. It's just that they may not have the experience needed to back. To back those ideas up with uh, proven deck building theory.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of debate about how much of the decks that are good now, however you want to see that, is because those decks just have the most powerful cards, they're the best strategies in the specific metagame for the tournament that you're playing, or there's something new that we just haven't discovered yet, and the only reason that we don't know, you know, that that deck isn't tearing up the format is because no one's really put those cards together which you know is a bit of an exaggeration of the position that people actually hold but you know there are lots of people who rightfully say that you know there are strategies that are still I think untapped that just haven't been worked on or maybe they are, are waiting for another card to be printed or one specific deck to become not less good than it is now or something like that. I,
1: I can definitely attest to waiting for specific cards to be printed because the deck that I the, the runner deck that I've been working on for a very, very long time, I was I was actually close to to giving up on it because it was just being it was very difficult to try and find a way to make it work and then suddenly artist colony.
0: And do you want to just give a recap to our listeners as to what deck that is? A
1: deck with, uh, with Chaos Theory, Magnum Opus, and Logos. Logos is a criminal console which allows you to, when the, when the corpse calls an agenda, you can search your deck and take any card from it. So I was using this to let the corpse call agendas, and then I will go get my Maker's Eye, or my Stim Hack, or my Legwork. And and do a power turn the next the next you know after the t- after the corpse scored an agenda because they are usually weaker at this point in time because they've had to res ice in the remote and they've spent money scoring the agenda etc etc etc. The problem with this deck was that um, it needed to spend four influence on logos, and it was very very crippled if it didn't find logos. Even in a forty card deck, sometimes your two consoles can be in the bottom. So you'd just be like, sometimes you'd have games where the four influence that you spent on logos isn't doing anything, and those influence could have been programs which shapers can naturally find easily, etc., etc. So talking about deck building, right, and the challenges that it poses to a new player, I have been banging my head against this deck for the last two years plus, and I'm still not hundred percent happy with the build. So I I completely understand the frustrations that new players have, in uh in believing that their deck isn't quite good enough but not knowing how to fix it it's yeah
0: one I like that you read out the text of Logos bef- uh, as you were mentioning the name just because I'm not sure if the intersection between people who have ever put Logos on their deck and listeners to our podcast is huge but you know write in the comments write in the comments if you're a secret Logos fan if you have I love Logos tattooed on your arm or leg or anywhere we'd love to know And also, you might be the first person to have a sort of strategy which is built around the idea of having Logos as soon as possible and tutoring for cards that you really want to find.
1: How to get better at deck building? I think you shouldn't try and reinvent the wheel. I think you should look at how the the quote-unquote good decks are being built and not copy them necessarily, although you can play them and see why they're considered good. Uh, but to at least understand the basic underlying principle of why they exist like why is Wildside a good card Uh, why is why is Shure Gamble a good card why is Daily Cast a good card for that strategy because Daily Cast is an awful card in my Opus deck it's just not good in there
0: we're definitely not going to tell you uh, the dear listener or someone who's new um, that if you just want to take 49 cards from the internet you can definitely do that but sort of if you want If you're interested in deck building, if that's an area of the game that you want to explore, then probably it's still the best thing to do is sort of to try, yeah, as you said, to try and understand why people who are more accomplished deck builders than you are have made specific decisions in their decks. Just like if you want to get better at playing, you would seek out people who explain their decisions in gameplay, right? So,
1: Yeah. So the the specific question that was asked is like, how do you balance power versus flexibility? How do you decide what quantity of each effect you want? So I think those are two very good questions, and I think I I kind of want to to talk about um, power versus flexibility uh, using three using three cards on the corp side: beanstalk, royalties, hedge fund, and restructure. Right. Beanstalk royalties cost zero to play and gives you three credits. Hedge Fund costs five to play and gives you nine credits, uh, net four. And Restructure ge- costs ten to play and gives you fifteen credits, net five. So there's a very clear progression among these three cards, right? Beanstalk gives you three, Hedge Fund gives you four, Restructure gives you five. But one costs zero to play, one costs five, and one costs ten. So this this I think is a is a great way to sort of illustrate how do you balance power versus flexibility flexibility is beanstalk royalties you can always play beanstalk royalties there is absolutely no time in the game where you wouldn't be able to play it
0: yeah that's definitely right that like those cards sort of operate on quite a clear progression and it's about trying to work out which one is going to be most impactful at the points in the game where money is going to be most impactful because of course restructure is going to gain you the most money but the difference between having 10 and 15 is sometimes like very important but most of the time, it's not as important as having zero and needing to click three times for credits.
1: Yeah, so Beanstalk Royalties may, is is a good card if you are if you're a deck that often finds yourself low, like you you may be sub five credits and you just need a very quick burst to get you out of the out of that um, out of that hole. Uh, a lot of decks a lot of decks sometimes use beanstalk royalties as account siphon recovery so you get siphoned to 0 then you can play beanstalk royalties and click for 2 credits so you go from 0 to 5 so you can res ice on the after the ter- on the turn after that you've been account siphoned
0: yeah and i think that it's even like that that is good but it's also best used in the situation where you want to go down to 0 credits yourself right you know if you want to be able to score from 3 credits if that's an integral part of your game plan to be able to score agendas as quickly as possible in the game then Beanstalk is going to be much better than Restructure because the situations where you're going to have 10 credits and need more credits will basically be negligible whereas the situations where you're going to have 0 credits because you've intentionally put yourself down to 0 credits to advance your game plan are going to be significant.
1: There's a lot that deck builders can learn from looking at Beanstalk Royalties, Hedge Fund and Restructure and deciding which ones you want in your deck. Because in some decks, restructure is a bad card, because you never ever ever get to ten credits if your game plan is going well.
0: Yeah, and you never want to click for credits when you already have like seven or eight credits, just so you can go up to fifteen. That just is not something that you want to do.
1: Because in some decks, the the most expensive piece of ice is like three credits, so you don't need you don't need to have, be able to play restructure. But in some decks, restructure is a great card because you have big ice and you want more money as hard as as hard as you can. So I think by, by sort of looking at these three cards as an illustrative example, you can kind of understand uh, a bit of the fundamentals of deck building. And similarly, when you look at Ice, what's the difference between Wall of Static, Ice Wall, and Vanilla? If you just need something in your deck that says, End the Run, Vanilla is fine. Right? May- but maybe if you need something in your deck that says, End the Run, and doesn't instantly die to Parasite, maybe you want Ice Wall. Right, or if or if you know that your opponent doesn't play a uh, Fracter in their deck, some decks don't. My current runner deck doesn't play doesn't play a Barrier Breaker, then you might opt for Wrap Around instead, which has plus seven strength if the runner has no installed Fractor So even this even the simplest subroutine and the run has all of these little variations. And I think the the core consideration is what is your strategy? I do I need to res ice on the cheap? just to stop the runner from getting into my server? Maybe you want to opt for vanilla. Do I want ice that makes the runner pay a couple of credits every time to get in? Maybe you want wall of static. Do I want ice that can be advanced because I'm going to do fun things with the advancement counters? Maybe I want ice wall instead, and maybe it's even worth paying the influence out of faction. It really depends on what your strategy is. and But that's the difficult part for new players because sometimes they don't know what their strategy is. And so...
0: Yeah, uh, last time we had Abram on, or maybe not last time but he said something very interesting, which was that when new players are starting to build a deck they'll say, I want to deal net damage to my opponent, let's build a net damage deck, and just put in every card that deals the opponent net damage and you know, eventually the runner, the corp will never be able to score from a remote, and the runner will win having lost most of the deck or something like that, when really you know, net damage, or dealing the runner damage in general is either a way to kill them if it's your primary game plan, or a way to slow them down on the the essential turns when you need to.
1: There are decks that do not care about scoring agendas and just want to kill the runner that are very successful. I'm thinking about uh, Industrial Genomics 49.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Like Net damage can be a primary game plan, but that deck is not really... That that deck wouldn't be improved by having more net damage cards, right?
1: I, I think Industrial Genomics 49, you can't put Neural Katanas in there, right? It, it, it would make the deck uh, worse because Neural Katanas are very expensive for that deck to res.
0: Yeah, uh, and so even if the game plan is dealing your opponent enough net damage to flatline them, you know, you yeah. don't want to necessarily do that by just dealing them as much net damage as possible. You want to be able to set up a situation where you can deal them a lethal amount of net damage. So I suppose the point is that um, you want most of the time... Ta- a lot of the time, you want your cards to fulfill very specific roles in the game. Or, I suppose that's where a lot of the uh, points that you're talking about come from when... If we just look at the simplest example, a barrier breaker with one ender on subroutine, you have decks that are trying to take the game really long like trying to build Glacier servers that just want something cheap uh, early you know that yeah. might have might, uh, and if they play vanilla it's gonna not do what they and they might play vanilla because they hear that vanilla is the strongest of those three or those five possible choices right and it doesn't cost any influence if they're playing HB or Jinteki Glacier and then what'll happen is that They'll res vanilla on... They'll maybe put a Sundew in a remote or something. They'll res the vanilla early. The vanilla will get Parasited. The Sundew will die. And they'll... You know, the card... uh, Nothing... The game will unravel from there.
1: So, I'm I'm not saying those decks can't use vanilla. But maybe you don't want more than one copy. Right? Like, you want to... Maybe you want one vanilla somewhere in there so that you can force a Parasite or force a Barrier Breaker to protect an asset. Or if you need... Uh, a card that just says end the run uh, so that you don't lose to account siphon right at the start of the game so maybe you could try one vanilla and see how that feels for you, right? That's Which brings me to the next aspect of um, beginner deck building mistakes that I see very often, which is having 3x of everything
0: Yeah, and I think even well, that's the simplest way to go, right? Like, if you're sort of trying to learn just about what cards you even want in certain strategies like what roles you want your cards to fulfill the most the easiest thing to do is to think i need something that draws me cards let's find the most effective card draw uh thing you know i've had worse or jackson or uh whatever a or, or whatever and let's just put three copies of that card and you know if we need more let's put two copies of the next card until we mm. run out of card draw
1: I think that you start with three copies of something if you want to try it out so that you can have more opportunities to try it out. You start with three um three diesel so you know what diesel feels like. You start with uh three copies of wall of static so you know what having wall of static feels like. And then as you as you play the game, which is very important, you need to build the deck, test the deck against against whoever your your regular play partner, or just take it to, to knights or whatever. And I think because because you can spend an infinite amount of time staring at the deck builder screen and never actually get anywhere, whereas you can play two games and like, oh, okay, that card isn't working for my strategy. This does not this doesn't mean that that card is bad. It's just not great for this strategy. Uh, to get back to the question of what is my actual strategy, um, oof, that's a really hard question, which is why I think that you should look at successful decks decks that, are, that, that win a lot um, that have been popular online because then you can see what their strategy is and then you can steal it, right? So, you, so let's say uh, what's a really common deck right now? Um, CTM uh, I don't even know what it's called but the, you know that, that CTM control deck uh, that, that occasionally fast advances
0: I've been calling it like board control or like halfway between asset spam and a remote deck
1: it's it's actually very it's actually very funny to me that the deck that, that is that um, popular doesn't actually have a name. My girlfriend plays it. Her name is D, so I've been calling it DTM.
0: Uh, I'll try and uh, get that to catch on, maybe.
1: What is your what is your deck strategy? Sometimes you want to score agendas out of the remote. Sometimes you want to fast advance agendas, um, and and some cards are good to support that to support that strategy that you've chosen. So looking at decks that people have done will help you to see what cards they have chosen, and help you understand why. And then once you have the fundamentals of understanding why, you can go forward and then break the rules, and you go hey, hang on, actually, if if I didn't run Jackson, and I ran uh, Sensei Actors Union, instead, just to, be abs- just to be blisteringly fast in the draw, even in this deck that isn't an asset spam deck, does that work? You can try it out, and maybe it will work, and you've broken new ground, and you've discovered something completely new that the rest of the community hasn't tried yet, and that's exciting. And, you, and I think that one of the advantages that you have as a new player is that you have the ability to surprise people, right? Because nobody expects uh, combination A, and you suddenly come out of nowhere with combination A, and, and people have to adjust and react to you, right? But you, you can only really get there if you understand the absolute fundamentals of tech building, um, how do how, how you understand when do i need three copies of this when do i need two copies of this when do i want one when do i not include the card at all because it's poor for my strategy and i think it's not a satisfying answer but it really is you have to build your deck test it build it uh, re- rebuild it test it rebuild it test it and yeah
0: basically the best way to learn is to play and i say this a lot the basically the only way to get better is to play and especially to play against people who are better than you but like you know you can consume all the media that you want podcasts are great obviously we're great Um, but there's still no substitute for just experience through playing and like that's why I think Jinteki is such a useful tool and I think we touched on this in our Nats preparation episode a couple weeks ago um, that even if you don't think that playing Jinteki is as good as playing in real life. I think playing in real life is better as well just because it's, has, it's a bit more of what Netrunner sh- sort of... The, it's a bit more of the interesting parts of Netrunner and you're not just clicking buttons, but you have to admit that Jinteki is an excellent tool in order to uh, get as many games in very quickly and especially being able to make changes on the fly and see how those changes impact your games.
1: Okay, so uh, I just have one more thing to say regarding deck building, uh, which is, looking back at the question, how do you uh, balance power versus flexibility? I know we talked about this with the Beanstalk hedge fund restructure example, but the follow-up was having different cards versus having many of the same cards. Um, This speaks to me on a very deep level because for a very long time I was trying to make that, that Swiss army knife deck with logos work, so one of the things that I did was I would just put in tons of one X cards, right? I would put in like uh, a feedback filter for the net damage matchup, a Plascrete Carapace for the meat damage matchup, and I would I would put in indexing for the k- versus the kill matchup, and I would put in uh, what's that thing called? Oh, the helpful AI for when I needed to boost. So I would put in lots of little one X cards. I think oh, this would be useful in this situation. Uh, and then the problem with that is if, I, if I've if i got like seven or eight cards in my deck that are only useful in one specific matchup in the other matchups they're not doing anything and I'll draw them into my hand I'm like what is this why is this here and, and, uh, and I would be like oh okay this is for the next game when I run into a Jinteki opponent except nobody in my meta is actually playing kill Jinteki so this feedback filter has been sitting in my deck for three months and isn't doing anything
0: in the one rare case that does happen like it might not even necessarily be relevant like you might win the game before it comes up your opponent might have a hardware destruction or something like that because they expect that people might tech a feedback filter against them or just like so so many other situations that don't make up for the fact that in most games it just gets discarded.
1: Yeah I mean feedback filter is fantastic if there's a ton of uh, kill in your meta so that you know not I'm not saying that feedback filter is a bad card, but one of the considerations that you have is that you have to build to what you expect to see right you ha- sometimes you just have to make the concession like I haven't had Plascrete in my deck for something like six months because nobody here plays kill or at least you know that kind of kill, and so for me, just having magnum opus. Is my is my meat damage protection? So have more credits than you, so that you can't trace me.
0: Basically, the only issue there is that people might twenty four seven you, right?
1: Yeah, but nobody does that here. So
0: instead of having a plascrete in your deck that doesn't do anything, every time you draw it, you've successfully managed to transform it into something useful. Instead, yeah.
1: correct. Yeah. So uh, to to go back to the question, how, having many different cards versus having many of the same card, um, I find that. Mm-hmm. I find that having silver bullets and specific answers is only useful if you expect to be able to use them or if your deck is particularly yes, weak I think against them. Right? Th- those two are like the main points. If, yeah. So, yeah, so if, you have, if you have a very decent um, win rate against every deck, unless you come up against somebody running 24 7 kill, then, then your deck instantly folds, then it's reasonable to include 1 plus grade. Like, uh, my friend loves Nasir. You need two film critics in Nasir, right? Because you you simply cannot afford to not run to not run two film critics. Most decks are like two film critics. That's a lot of film critics. You usually only run one, right? But Nasir, I think, really needs the two so he doesn't die to being mid seasoned or, uh, or so or so he can play he so he can steal future perfects and NAPDs and things of that nature yeah so it's it's deeply specific to your deck and deeply specific to your strategy but uh I wouldn't include too many silver bullets because it dilutes your deck's potency um sometimes sometimes you just need to play a little bit safer like against the net damage thing deck don't run with fewer than three cards in hand, run early in the turn so you can draw up as you take damage, so these are like replacements for your feedback filter kind of you know what i'm saying
0: the point is that it's not as i said before it's not always the case that you're going to need feedback filter to win even in the matchup where it's necessarily good and i suppose that comes into play even when even not necessarily with silver bullets but just in terms of like your ice composition or sw- uh, switching between two assets that are kind of similar like if you're comparing like pad campaign and launch campaign or whatever. Um, that still comes into play, even though it's not as drastic. You know, where some decks, it's really it's much better to be faster and have launch campaign, and some decks, it's much better to be stickier. In some matchups, it's much better to be stickier and have pad campaign, even though, you know, one's faster, one's slower. And so, even that sort of change, I think, um, can be dependent on the sort of decks you're expecting to face.
1: Uh, one one very last thing, which is, um, I said earlier that I don't have a barrier breaker in my deck right now. I'm pretty sure a lot of new players, if they had listened to that earlier, they like, what? How can you get away without being able to break barriers? Right? Won't you just lose every game to end the run? Which, which is true, which is why I had a barrier breaker in my deck for the longest time. Uh, but I think there were several factors that led to me finally ditching it. The first one is that I play Shaper, and in Shaper, your deck build, your, your barrier choices are Inti, uh, Battering Ram, which costs two memories, so that's out because I use Magnum Opus, Snowball, which is very expensive, um, Lady, which costs influence, and that's it. Other, other than that, you're going to out- out of faction for your for your barrier breaker, and I really didn't like having to spend two influence on Corroda, or three influence on Paperclip. So, how does, how does my deck get by without a Barrier Breaker? Uh, by running Artman, Chameleon, David and Parasite. So, David takes care of Wraparound, which is uh, possibly one of the most common um, problem barriers. Chameleon gets around everything Wall of Static or Smaller. Artman gets around everything that's bigger than Wall of Static, and Parasite gets rid of Vanilla.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like how um, lots of decks previously just used Faust David as an engine, and that sort of covers the spectrum of everything you might... Or if you include Mimic for Swordsman, that basically covers the spectrum of every card you might expect to face against, right? Even though you don't necessarily have what you might traditionally call a regular rig of one Fracta... One decoder and one killer
1: it took me a long time to come to the realization that i don 't actually need a barrier breaker and the, the the way I came to that realization was I was playing lots of games and I was drawing into my uh, my corroder or my snowball, and I was like i don 't actually need to install this because if if I do install it it 's just taking up one one memory slot in my rig, which is precious because I run Magnum opus. And and it doesn't actually help me that much. I might I might as well just use my chameleon or use my parasite to get rid of the eyes or just use my Artman to break it, so that Artman can break the wall of static and also break the architect. Right? So so that's you know that that's stronger. So after after something like twenty games when I started like a- after I started noticing this and I only found that I only ever really needed to install my barrier breaker in like two of them. I was like, you know what, maybe I can drop it and it'll be fine. And currently it's fine. But if the meta shifts to lots of people playing different strength barriers like uh spiderweb, next silver, um, you know, then I might have to put it back in. But currently in my current meta, I feel like I don't need it.
0: Yeah, the thing that we're saying is that really you need experience, which is not maybe the best thing to hear as a new player that there's no yeah. magic there's no magic solution to learning how to you know build decks that just have perfect ratios or whatever, right?
1: What is each faction strong at? Which we actually sort of half answered in the previous episode where we talked about runners. I'll I'll recap very quickly first. Um for the for the for the for the purposes of being friendly to our listeners. So we talked about how shapers often are the best at dealing with ice and building up to this unstoppable late game rig. Um Criminals generally don't want to deal with ice at all because their breakers are generally quite poor, but they have a lot of tools like account siphon and forged activation orders to make sure that they don't actually have to face ice, and they have inside job femme fatale to bypass ice completely so they don't have to break ice. Anarchs are more disruptive, they blow up your stuff, they have cards like Parasite which destroy your ice, and they they want to make the corpse life as difficult as possible so that they can... Uh, run in and steal agendas when the cop has sort of been staggered by a series of blows in the previous in the previous turns. So that's what we're talking about in terms of Anna. So let me talk about cops. Uh, do you want to alternate? Do you uh, want to pick a cop and I'll pick a cop? Sure, corp? you can start. Wayland is my favourite cop faction and I think that they are strong not necessarily at killing the runner, although that's what a lot of people associate them with. They're like the meat damage faction. They have scorched earth um, which is a very iconic card, and I think that scorched Earth is a very good backup plan. I don't think it's a very good primary win condition at the, at the moment. Uh, but the thing that I like about Wayland is that they have really, really good agendas. I think they have some of the best agendas in the game. I think they have pro- they have Project Atlas, they have Oaktown Renovation, they have Hostile Takeover. Uh, those three are almost. I, I think they're they're almost close to considered perfect for an agenda suite because they give you money when you score them Project Atlas as a tutor anything ability which usually is the next Project Atlas to jam into the scoring remote. All right? So if I put if I put an Enigma and a spider web the runner needs two types of two types of icebreakers to get past it. And I just go install Advance Advance and Atlas. I score the Atlas with two counters on it next turn. And I just find the next Atlas. Or I just find the uh, I just find an Oaktown renovation or whatever. So why why I like Wayland is because they're a faction that has a lot of they have a lot of options if you can if you can score their agendas, they have their ice isn't isn't the strongest at the moment but they still have some really good ice like I think curtain wall is a lot of fun to use I think orion is fun I think spider web is actually really really good I think spider web is one of the best barriers in the game I think ice wall is one of the best barriers in the game um and I think Wayland is most the, the thing is that Wayland is flexible I like the ability of Project Atlas to tutor I like the fact that Wayland has uh cards like Executive Bootcamp and Elizabeth Mills uh, and Mark Yale cards that like work at instant speed, which really appeals to my shaper heart. So I think you, I think you should play Wayland if you like a faction that isn't so straightforward and lets you have um, moments to really make decisions with what do I tutor with my Project Atlas, when do I try and overscore an Atlas versus when do I bluff with it as a blank three two, things, things of that nature. And Blue Sun, of course. Blue Sun is like the best ID in the um, game, sorry. Yeah,
0: if you like any other ID apart from Blue Sun, please send Kelvin hate mail. It's okay. Um, I'm sure none of our listeners would really send anyone hate mail. Um, but yeah, let's just talk about MBN. So I think that in the core set, MBN was kind of defined by Astro for most, or not necessarily in the core set, but just for most of its life, MBN was defined by Astro and how to best utilize Astro. So, and especially the Astro-Sansan um, pair which worked excellently together up until the last MWL. Um, so I suppose NBN's strengths include um, being able to set up board position very quickly so either by having Astro threatening the runner by existing in the score area or having say Sansan and very cheap but effective ice on your remote Uh, and now i think with the preponderance of ctm or sort of similar or more tag heavy decks in general that don't necessarily rely on biotic and astro they've gotten a sort of new angle of being able to never advance breaking news in a remote and sort of mess with the runner's game plan in various different ways and so i think that's a bit of an interesting new angle for MBN to take, not necessarily a new angle, but angle that's had more focus lately in that it allows you yeah, as you said with Wayland, a lot of flexibility with what you do while still being able to maintain a primary game plan of building up your board as quickly as possible and sort of overwhelming the runner with things that they have to deal with before they're ready to deal with them. I would say that People should play MBN if they like um, having lots of control over uh, where their cards are. Like you know, MBN, I think has lots of manipulation of their resources, especially with Jackson. And also, um, if you don't mind the fact that the runner is going to get into your servers eventually, and you're really just trying to outpace them until that happens. So I'll talk about
1: Jinteki. Um... Jinteki is the faction that you play if you don't want the runner to have a good choice, right? You you want to put you want to put them between a rock and a hard place and say, okay, you either do A, which sucks, or you do B, which sucks more, but bo- in both cases, I'm winning. It's uh, people people tend to dismiss Jinteki as the mind games faction where, oh, if the runner doesn't run your traps then you lose. But the the whole point of a good Jinteki deck is it doesn't matter if they run your traps or not because you're still advancing your board state to a point where they have to do it. Because let's use the most common example, right? Install, advance, advance, a bug. Install, advance, advance, June bug sounds like a great plan until the runner doesn't run it, right? And then the bug isn't doing anything. But if you build a Jinteki deck that can effectively get to five points... And then you install Advance Advantage June bug, the runner's like, oh no. Right? Because now they have to run it, because it could be an agenda, and they could win the game. And you could win the game. So this is this is a very simplified example, but it kind of exemplifies Jinteki in the sense that it forces the runner into bad situations and it has the cart pool to support that. So I think I think that there's a lot of really interesting ways to play Jinteki I mentioned Industrial Genomics forty nine. Uh I also really like uh Nisei division because side games are another way to force the runner into situations where they don't want to do anything. Like they they hate playing the side game, so they avoid doing it as much as possible. So y- you win the game <laughs> because they just don't want to have to deal with with Caprice Nisei in a remote. Uh Replicating Perfection is another ID which gives the runner no good decisions. Either you waste a click running a central server before you have to check my remote, or you attack my central servers which has lots of snares or really difficult ice. Right? So yeah, Jinteki is for for, for, for people who uh, want to put their opponent into... the What's the chess term? Zugzwang, where there's no good move.
0: If they don't run, they're screwed. If they do run, they're screwed. Um, but yeah, no, that makes sense, and so uh, I think HB is sort of maybe derided as the most straightforward faction, but I think that being consistent and efficient is a benefit in itself, and so I think that's the main uh, strength of HB, is that most of your cards do fairly similar things in that you have ice of of the three main types that all are reasonably powerful and You can tailor them to the specific meta that you're expecting um, within a fairly narrow power band. They have lots of ways of generating resources, mostly credits, some cards, both in the long term and in the short term, Um, but they're sort of limited in that there's not that much, you know, since most of your cards do the same thing, there's not that much opportunity to surprise the runner with something that they're not really expecting because, you know, if you have this many economy cards, this many ice that protect your servers, and this many agendas, then every game you're going to draw some mix of economy ice and agendas, but there's no real way to, say, gain a huge monetary lead over the runner or some, or um, trick them into running into something which might not they might not have expected. Um, but I would say that if that doesn't bother you, if you like the opportunity to basically have most of your games play the same way and really learn how each of your decisions affects what the runner wants to do, then HP is perfect for you.
1: It's it's something I hadn't considered before, but HP is very consistent in that. It's like you said, most of your games will play out more or less the same way. So in that case, maybe it's good for new players to
0: learn, actually. Every faction um, does have some things to teach new players in some way, but yeah, I think that that what I said before was right in that it is very much like you know most of your games will play it the same way so you can see if you do something slightly differently like you choose maybe to build a second remote or to like jam a remote on turn one or to maybe wait a couple turns more than you would normally before building a remote or something like that then they can have obvious impacts on the game
1: okay so the next question that we have is How do you work out your opponent's strategy when you don't necessarily know all the common cards in the format of common decks? So
0: that's kind of an extension of everything we've talked about in that if you're new and you're coming to a tournament, you don't necessarily know from your opponent's first turns what they're going to do. So for example, maybe you don't know that if they're going... if If their identity is industrial genomics and they lead with draw, draw, ice archives then they're probably going to and kill you with Chairman, Hero, and Ronin, which is a bit of a difficult leap to start making from turn one. Um, And I think we've all come into it before where our opponent just does something that we honestly have no idea about. Like, I've had it happen recently with False Echo DDoS and playing CI7 Point Shutdown, um, I've played against opponents who just didn't know what my strategy was until the turn that they died. And so, how would you say the best way for new players to approach that sort of situation is. It can
1: be very frustrating for new players when they come up against decks like this because they feel like there's nothing that they could have done. I think this is the most common um, f- frustration point for new players, right? When they come up against something that they don't expect and, like, and they instantly lose, and they're like what could I possibly have done to counter that? The answer is lots of things, you just don't know that they exist. Which is not a fun answer to hear, and it is frustrating, but I think really, the only thing that they can do is to is to practice. If they lose to something really interesting, they'll be like, "Oh, okay. How did that? How did that work exactly? Let me look it up. Uh, let me ask people. Hey, this player was doing this and this really interesting thing. What what deck is that? And then you'll find out. Oh, it's CI seven point shutdown where they win the whole game on one turn. And they're like, "Oh, that's horrible. How do I how do I beat that? And the answer is uh run hq <laughs> or you know it's very very simplified but yeah you get the basic idea right so you have to know what the what the what the opponent's deck is trying to do you have to understand where the weak points are and to attack at those weak points but doing so requires that you understand what the deck is you understand where the weak points are and that you practice against it so it's not it's not a fun answer but the answer is you have to play the game you have to play the game a bit more right because Standard Netrunner is a lot of fun, but a lot of uh, people try and get away from playing Standard Netrunner because everybody knows Standard Netrunner, so they know how to play Standard Netrunner. So decks like Industrial Genomics 49 and the CI 7-point shutdown get away from that by trying to get wins, by exploiting the fact that people don't know how to play against it because it's not Standard Netrunner.
0: It might be that uh, decision points, which seem unthinkable in most matchups, are just... Uh, see, evidently the best thing to do to win those. Like, against a uh, 7-point shutdown, in gen- in, especially, you want to run very early, then for most of the game, you don't want to, if you think that they might be able to um, score 7 points in one turn, with Power Shutdown, you want to not run at all, and then at some point later on in the game, you want to start running again. And so that sort of thing is not... Unless you know that Power Shutdown exists, and specifically that your opponent might have it in the deck, and that's essential to their game plan, you basically um, have no chance of working that out without playing. So I guess, yeah, pl- the essential lesson is play more. Which you know, that's cool. If you like to play, if you like to play Netrunner, um and you want to be a competitive, then you need to play a lot. I- I'm okay with telling people that.
1: <laughs> I do want to reassure new players that if somebody knows that you're a new player and they play Seven Point Shutdown against you, they are a jerk.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not. If you're trying to teach someone the fundamentals, right. definitely um, being like, okay, so now you just never need to run again for the rest of the game until you score five points in one turn. <laughs> um, that's fairly not not good.
1: Yeah if if they if they bring out if they bring out really these really um, non-standard decks against a new player on purpose. I don't know. I I guess they're being a jerk, right? Like because it's not instructive to the new player. They just see all it, and in fact, it may be it may be repulsive in the sense that it repels them from the game because they're like, oh, there's this is deck which is so weird and so different, and I didn't expect it. I guess I shouldn't bother ever.
0: The idea that decks that don't play standard netrunner can be good, like you know, if you don't, there's lots of people. Once they lose to the seven point deck, they might go. I didn't even know that this was possible within the framework of Netrunner, like that there could be a deck with, which literally wins in one turn. Um, and that, I think, especially to most people who want to deck build, um, that might be really like informative. Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to episode 102 of The Winnie Agenda. I'm Wilfie Horrig here with Calvin Wong. If you want to get in contact with The Winning Agenda, you can do so in many ways. One, you can email us at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. Two, you can hit us up on Facebook at The Winning Agenda, that's our Facebook page. You can uh, tweet at us, we're at Winning Agenda. Or if you really feel like being supportive, you can um, check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com winningagenda. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with more Sweet Sweet content.
1: Play Wayland!